Welcome to the Warriors of Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. Warriors of Grace is about helping men from generation to generation become gospel men in private, in the home, in the church, and in public through the Word of God. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys. Well, welcome back to the Warriors of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we continue our Prayer and the Sufficiency of Christ series. This is episode number three. And today the title of this episode is The Disciples' Prayer. We're, we're continuing our this series today, Prayer and the Sufficiency of Christ. Uh, going through the Lord's Prayer and a number of other passages like we have. Today we're going to look at Matthew 6, 7 through 10, which says this, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Pharisees loved to be seen uh, praying in public, they, but their prayers were not centered on the Lord. They were selfish. They were self-focused. Jesus, we talked about last week, he uh, encourages us to pray in secret. And you know what? Let's be honest. People are not especially eager to be seen praying today. But in Jesus' day, as we considered already in this series, prayer, fasting, almsgiving were the three great signs of piety. Devotion to prayer signified righteousness, but Jesus warned his disciples not to miss the point of the spiritual disciplines. Matthew 6, 1 says this, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Now, Jesus isn't forbidding public prayer. He occasionally prayed in the presence of his disciples. Prophets and apostles sometimes prayed in public also. It's not wrong to be seen praying, but it is wrong in order to pray to be seen. And as we saw in our last study, it's better to pray in in a closed room, privately, with the door closed. Now, public prayer, as we already said, is not sinful, but the essence of prayer is private communion with God. And a quiet, secluded place is best for this. And because hypocrites pray with an eye towards their reputation, how they can be seen and heard, they miss the essence of prayer. But Jesus says if we attend to God, if we're about the honor of God, he will reward us. By avoiding hypocrisy, we surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. Our prayers may not be technically superior but we pray for a noble reason. We do not pray for show or to fulfill a religious duty, but to delight in God, to commune with the Lord. In fact, pagan prayer fails in a different way. Atheists do not pray at all, and agnostics may do nothing more than toss up a petition in case someone is up there listening. (coughs) But many pagans do not pray. In Jesus' day, they prayed mechanically. They heaped up empty words. The problem was not repetition. After all, Jesus blesses those who pray 
persistently. Their problem was their mindless repetition, a tongue that wagged while the mind slept. And to this day, some religions practice meditation, and they just repeat words over and over again to attain a trance-like state. And some Christians repeat the Apostles' Creed or a liturgy or even the Lord's Prayer so mechanically that they can hardly ever hear themselves speak. And yet genuine prayer is sincere, not hypocritical. It is thoughtful, not mechanical. And so as we've talked about, public prayer already is, public prayer is permissible, but genuine prayer finds its voice in private. Public prayer has a distraction of, you know, people around it. <coughs> it has an audience. Can it be influenced by that audience? In private, in private prayer, we can stumble. We can correct ourselves. We can even admit we don't know how to pray. We can pause to think or even leave a thought unfinished. But these things are not suitable for public prayer. Pagan prayer of Jesus' day sought to manipulate the gods with what Jesus calls in Matthew 6, 7, many words. The petitions of pagan prayer were very short. They were simple, says, grant me safety on my journey. This simple prayer might grow to many words in two ways. First, they might invoke the names of many deities, hoping that at least one of them might be, might be kind enough to answer their request. And second, they might make the same request over and over and over again. And we recall the prophets of all in their contest with Elijah on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. They cried to Baal from the morning till the noon. In 1 Kings 18.26, they shouted and danced and slashed themselves, growing ever more frantic in a futile attempt to gain Baal's attention. In fact, some people today, they even think that God is disinterested in them. And so he doesn't care if we pray. Or because he, he won't listen anyway. They hope to shake the Lord from his apathy, to shout above his deafness, or to locate the formula that captures his heart, his attention. And the problem with this is it's really bad theology. In fact, our prayer lives reveal our theology. But the real problem with this in prayer is not that God is too busy with us, but that we feel too busy for him. God has not removed himself from us. We have removed ourselves from the Lord. Now, we don't need to master, we don't need to master techniques to, to pray more effectively. We should reject the idea that our prayers must be good enough to merit the attention of God. Our words will never be good enough to merit the attention of God. That is why Christ came. That's why Christ died. That is why Christ rose so that we could have the righteousness of God imputed to us by faith in Christ alone. And the pagans have their ideas about how to garner God's attention. We have ours. Some Christians think that their fervor, their sincerity, their techniques may gain them God's care, God's favor. Some think if I rise early enough, if I get down on my knees, if I'm cold, I'm in, I, I, I don't have my coffee, I, I withhold certain things, then God will hear me. But such prayer performances do not seek the Lord at all. 
They may be seeking God's benefits, or they may even, at worst, be trying to manipulate the Lord. And instead of pleading for mercy, they attempt to force God to be merciful. Persistent prayer is good, but God does not answer our prayers based on our, our persistence, our performance. God answers our prayer because he loves us because of Christ. True prayer seeks to commune with God, not to extract benefits, not to, not to impress him, but to pour out our hearts, to pour out our burdens, to pour out our struggles, to commune with the, the Lord. True prayer rests in God's generosity, not in our efforts to earn rewards. True prayer waits on God's wisdom rather than assuming that we can accurately assess our need. True prayer trusts God and finds its confidence in the Lord. And so now we come to the opening of this prayer before us today in our passage that we're going to look at. The first half of this pattern for prayer is God-centered. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 9-10, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the words, our Father in heaven, they reveal the first element of Christian prayer. It is a family speech. We address God as our Father. In Jesus' day, this was truly radical. Jewish prayer stressed the sovereignty of God, the lordship, the glory, the grace, and the covenant. On rare occasions, the Old Testament referred to God <coughs> as Father. But no prophet taught the people of Israel to pray to God as our Father. And when Jesus called God his Father, some Jews were deeply offended, like in John 5.18. Pious Jews held God in such awe that they used, uh, they, they used to avoid saying his name for fear of misusing it. And therefore, we must pause to reflect on this remarkable truth. Jesus teaches us to address the Holy, the Almighty Lord as our Father. In fact, God's fatherly nature connects us directly to the gospel. And many Christians are feel very unworthy to pray. Many Christian men, they feel so unworthy to pray. God's presence frightens them due to their sin. And for some, the difficulty is their repeated requests. They understand that the Lord forgives the sinner who comes to repent of sin, but they cringe at the thought of asking the Lord for mercy, for grace, for help again and again for the same sin. And so they project their impatience on God. They recoil at the thought of asking forgiveness for the same sin again and again and again. They think, I asked for forgiveness, I asked for strength, and then I commit the same sin again and again, and I return to the pig's vomit the next day with the same request. I'm making no progress whatsoever. What's the point, they think? I've heard this over and over and over in counseling men. Almost every Christian, though, struggles with one particular sin. Our tongues may curse, they may boast, they may lie, they may gossip. Our hearts might be filled with envy, with jealousy, with lust. We may crave alcohol, drugs, and sensual indulgence. We may be short-tempered, we might be critical. Doubt and dark thoughts may hold our, our thoughts captive, and we wonder how we can enter into the presence of God with this load of sin. But 
We need to remember the gospel. Jesus is more than a teacher. Matthew eleven twenty one says, Jesus came into the world to save his people from their sins. Jesus did not come simply to tell people to stop sinning. The prophets could handle that. The Son of God entered history to save sinners. Romans 4.25 says he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And Jesus hints at this command with the phrase, God the Father. And understand this, and, and doubt dissipates. How do parents treat their children when they come confessing their weaknesses? Are we shocked? Do we banish them? Do we say, come here so I can punish you and then disown you? Even sinful human parents know how to confront and, and forgive. How much more will God the Father treat us with mercy and with grace? Some cannot bear the thought of failing God over and over and over again. But do you, do you think he is surprised to see you confessing that particular sin again and again? Did he not know your weaknesses, your sins long ago? We ask, can God love me when I fail him as a Christian? He can. He sent Christ knowing the sins we would commit both before coming to faith and after coming to faith in him. That is his unconditional love. This is his immutable character, his unchanging character. This, this unchanging love is a love that exceeds all human loves. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying. The Father, though, grieves over our sins, but the gospel says that God loved us while we were yet sinners, and surely he loves us now that we are his sons and daughters. Too many of us live on this performance-based cycle. We think, you know what, it's about, it's about you know what, a grading, God graves on a curve. And so when I sin, I get an F. When, when I mess up, I, I, have to, I have to do something in order to regain the favor of God. But you know what? That's, that's, that's our sinful nature. That's, the, that's what the world believes. That's what the flesh wants. Do, do something, anything, to appease God. But we have to remind ourselves that this thought is anti-gospel. It's anti-gospel. It's the gospel of our world. If you do more, you know what? You'll, you'll progress. If you, if you sacrifice your family on the altar of, of professionalism, if you are a workaholic, you know what? You'll get promoted. You'll get rewarded. That's the gospel of our world. Sacrifice your family. Sacrifice your values. Give of your whole self and your whole life. Have no privacy. Have no life of your own even as our culture, interestingly, presses the gospel of self-improvement as well. But the gospel is totally different than this. God came born in a manger under the sentence of death to pay the penalty that we justly deserve. We do not deserve to have access to the throne of God. In fact, the people of Israel did not have 24-7 access to the throne of God. Once a year, the high priest would enter after being ritually and ceremonially clean. 
into the presence of God to make atonement for the people that would cover over their sins. That's what atonement means. When Christ said it is finished, the Bible tells us the veil was torn in two. Hebrews 4.16 invites us, it summons us before this throne of grace. Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4, which we'll look at in this series, they tell us that God sympathizes with our weakness. He went through it all. He was tempted in every way, and yet he never sinned. God knows what we do. He sees. And God yet still says to us as Christian men, come to me. Don't bear that guilt to burden. Bring it to Jesus. He has borne it for you. Come. Come and rest in the love of God. That's what's so amazing what Jesus says in John 15. Abide in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit. Why? The word abide, it means remain in him. It means to be vitally connected to Christ in union with the Lord. This is the gospel applied to prayer. God is personal, he's loving, he's powerful, and we can take every, every, every care, every concern to the Lord. When God says, you are the children of the Lord your God in Deuteronomy 14.1, he is saying two things. I love you, and however strong you are compared to others, you're, you are weak enough to need my help like children. You have a, enough to say, help me. Why deny our need of the strength of God? We are children, humble and weak enough to need God's help. We are also believers, wise and confident enough to ask God our Father to help us. And Jesus teaches us to call God Father. To be precise, we should pray to him as our Father. We do not pray abstractly to the Father individualistically as my Father, but corporately and communally to our Father. This reminds us that we belong to the family of God because of Christ. In the New Testament, only Jesus calls God Father. He speaks of my Father 40 times, the Father dozens of times. But here he teaches us to pray to our Father. And we pray further to our Father in heaven, reminding us that true prayer is transcendent. Our prayers reach, escape Velocity. We pray to the King, the Sovereign King, the Father who dwells on high. And so the, the, the address, uh, Father in heaven, means that God is both near to us, for He is our Father, and beyond us, for He is in heaven. So true prayer is private, it's confident, it's simple, it's familial, it's corporate, it's transcendent. We pray to the Father, to our Father, and to our Father in heaven. And through it all, biblical prayer is centered on God himself. And so we might have all sorts of questions at this point. If God is sovereign, right, pray. Can we change the will of God? Should we even try to change the will of God? Why is it hard to pray about things like sex, debt, and fear? Why is it easy to pray for missionaries? Why is it easier to pray for our children than for our parents? Why is it easier to pray for a friend's health than for our own? What does God think of long prayer lists with request after request? These are good. These are honest questions, and the Lord answers some of them indirectly. But regardless of any unanswered questions, Jesus does teach the essential of prayer. 
The Lord's Prayer is, is a guide. It's a pattern. It's not a formula. It's not a mantra. It tells us how to pray, not precisely what to pray. And so we might repeat these words in a liturgy or use different words. True prayer begins with God, our Father in heaven. And because his concerns rank first and our desires rank second, Jesus instructs us to pray first for his honor, his will, and his kingdom. And the first petition, hallowed be your name, must be understood broadly. We should strive to use the name of God correctly because his name also represents his person. To honor God's name is to honor the Lord himself. And so true prayer is God-centered. Prayer can help us center. It helps us to meditate on spiritual matters. But we need to be clear, true prayer is not praying, centering, or meditating prayers. Prayer brings us to God, the creator, the redeemer, the sovereign Lord. And so the prayer, hallowed be our name, is similar to the third commandment in Exodus 20, 17, which says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We honor God's name when we pray sincerely, not as a ritual or an incantation. We honor God by praising him warmly, by discussing his ways reverently. We never say, oh my Lord, merely to express surprise, we may say, we say, my God, when we cry out to the Lord, not when we cry out when we just bumped our finger. And we also honor God's name with godly conduct. If we call ourselves Christians, we we honor or dishonor his name with every public deed. Our conduct says, this is the way that we are to live when we come under the influence of Christ. That is why uh, I'm not a fan of putting Christian bumper stickers on, on my car. I'm not a bad driver, but I doubt my driving is good enough to represent the name of the glory of God. But to put it differently, if we put a pro-life message on our car, we need to drive in a consistently pro-life way. We honor God's name by honoring his person. And when you pray, hallowed be your name, the Greek word for hallowed would usually be translated sanctified. We are not praying that God's name should become holy. It's already holy. Rather, we're praying that his name and his person might be revered. We pray that God's name, which embodies his essence, his character, will be treated as holy. This means we honor God's name in public, and we pray that the world will honor him too. And we also strive to honor God in private. Hallowed be your name is a large petition. We Pray we will speak well of God and that our lives will cause others to bless his name. We pray that we can focus on God's nature, not just our needs when we pray. In prayer, we say, I admire you. I adore you, Lord. And so this first petition also illuminates some obstacles to prayer. And the chief obstacle is unbelief. If someone doubts that God exists or sometimes feels that he's impersonal or weak, it's hard to pray. Such people can only lob up a prayer or a hope that their prayers will be answered. And many Christians get confused. We can master information about God. We can be masters of biblical and systematic theology. And we can cease to focus on the Lord. We can be so busy studying God's word that we miss sight of the God who speaks in and through his and by, I should say, his word. Others make prayer into a discipline, a personal Quiet time, daily prayer is good, but we should wince when people say, I missed my quiet time today. It's been, so it's been a dreadful day. If we need a quiet time to guarantee a good day, we miss the point. We meet with God in prayer and in the word. 
this petition overlaps with the first. For God's name is honored whenever his rule is more evident. Your kingdom come means that Christ is king and we want his rule to become more evident every day. And your kingdom come is also an evangelistic prayer. We pray that the blessings of salvation will flow, that the church will grow in size and influence, and that Christians will grow in maturity, and that we would obey Jesus in every sphere of life. And we also pray that Christ will return. If we seek God in prayer, we long to see him face to face, to pray your kingdom come, is to pray for the restoration of all things, that his kingdom will come in its perfect form, and finally, to pray your kingdom come is to ask the Lord to reign now in our lives. So this petition bridges the God-centered and the personal aspects of the Lord's prayer. It contains two elements. First, we ask to know the will of God. And second, we ask that we and others would have the desire and the strength to do it by the grace of God through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And we first ask first that God would Make his will clear. The will of God means two things. His moral will, his precepts, and his will for history, his decrees. God's precepts are his revealed will, his principles and rules for holy living, such as the Ten Commandments and the law of love. God's decrees are his eternal counsel or plan for human history. And so it's right that God's will will be done in both senses. We ought to pray for obedience in God's moral will. We may also pray that the Lord would perform his will and show us his will for the elements of life, where to live, what career to pursue, what, whom to marry, how to educate our children, how to use our gifts, and how to spend our time. This prayer is akin to a prayer for wisdom and discernment, a prayer for wise friends and counselors. And yet, your will be done is also a prayer for a more distant day when Christ returns and his will shall be done perfectly. And until then, we pray that God's will should be more visible on earth with more love, more freedom, more joy, with less sin and less frustration. We pray that earth will look more like heaven and less like hell. We pray for loving homes and for justice and truth in our society. And finally, to pray for these blessings is to commit ourselves to the work of the, these ends. And so the first half of the Lord's Prayer is so God-centered that it prompts us to scrutinize our prayers. Why do we pray? Do we praise or thank God for a moment and then move to a string of petitions? Do we ask again and again for health, for peace, for prosperity, for one person after another? Let us not miss the point of prayer. Let us pray above all that the person of our Lord be blessed. And this is so important, friends. We us men we need to have the right motivation. We, if, we are a, if you're a Christian man, you are vitally connected to Christ. You are in him and he in you. You are his and he is yours. So when you pray, you don't pray just to check something off your list. You are praying to enjoy the God who, because of the grace of God, has saved you. You who are dead and your trespasses and sins, you now belong to God. You are in him if you are in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, then you need to come to Christ. You need to repent and believe and put your trust and hope in Christ. And the goal of the series really is to say this, you must enjoy who you are because of who Christ is and that the word should affect your prayer life. And that's what we're seeing already unfold in this series as we continue on. 
Well, man, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Warriors of Grace podcast. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Warriors of Grace podcast. If you enjoyed the show today, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you want to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or search Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find our show on the front page of the website, servantsofgrace.org.